Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to Your Book, to the podcast, The Literary Nosy Parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. We don't usually do birthday announcements on the podcast, but I'd like to wish the happiest of birthdays to the Margate Bookshop, who just turned two. Also, they have signed copies of my novel, Insatiable, and they deliver nationwide. Now on to today's guest. Esther Freud is a prolific author and has been beloved by readers ever since the publication of her smash hit semi-autobiographical novel, Hideous Kinky. She's a Faber Academy teacher, a screenwriter, and, according to Wikipedia, which we take with a pinch of salt, she's been in the bill. We're here to celebrate her latest novel, I Couldn't Love You More, a brilliant, beautiful, bittersweet, intergenerational love story. We talked about Anne Patchett, the Cazalets, and the book that made her realise she could be a writer. I was wondering whether your reading habits have changed much over the last year, if you've reached for books in a different way or a different kind of book, or if you've craved them more or found it harder to immerse yourself in other worlds. I thought that this would be an amazing opportunity to read more and that I would have long, lazy afternoons reading. But actually, I'm disappointed to say that I haven't read in a very different way. I've had a few afternoons and sometimes a whole evening but my, my, my reading tends to happen at night before I go to sleep, I'll read. And I get through a lot of books that way. But I don't know why I haven't, I don't seem to have so much more time. Maybe my life isn't actually that different. I don't know. Um, although I have noticed that if I'm not really enjoying a book, I put it down more quickly in this last year because it's so damn important to really be losing yourself in a book. Uh, so what are the books that have really been holding your attention, the ones that have stayed with you? Well, I had already read um, one or possibly even two of Elizabeth Jane Howard's Cazalet series, which people have been talking about for years, and I, I just never thought about it. And I started reading, um, because some of this novel, as you now know, having read it, is set in the war, just the sort of it's not a huge part of the book, but it kind of is um, almost like the foundations of the of the three tier family that the the big love affair of the grandparents in the book, you know, begins in the war. They get married the week that war starts. I started looking and reading books that were set at that time. I, I started looking at books set in Ireland. You know, I, I read. I like to do my research if I possibly can through novels. I love fiction. I, non-fiction is harder for me to immerse myself in. So anyway, the Cazalet series, um, 
I loved so much that once lockdown started, I treated myself to reading There Are Five in the series, although I have to say the fifth one isn't so marvellous as the others, but I read it anyway, every page. Then I read um, Elizabeth Jane Howard's autobiography, Slipstream. So I could pretty much go on mastermind just at the moment about her. And I, it's so fascinating and wonderful having read these fairly autobiographical novels and then to read her autobiography and see kind of as a writer and I use my own life as much as I can get away with. And also I like to, to sort of investigate stories. It's very interesting to see how she did it as well and how she created some things, left things out, how very, very um, creative she was with it. I haven't read Slipstream, even though it's one of those books that I know I will, I'm sure I will adore it because I read all of the the Cazalet books at the beginning of the last lockdown for years and years and years. Everyone I knew had said, you will love these. I'm like, yes, I know, I know. And I think sometimes when you know that there is a treat in store, it's almost like it's the pudding you never allow yourself. And then finally I thought, I will read these books. And I remember finishing one and I think I bought them all at once. And that, oh, I should probably try and read something else before I start the next one. And I'd be halfway through the next one, kind of chaining them. I know, I was the same. I... I, I left a gap between the first two. And then the more I read them, the more I wondered why I was depriving myself of, there was nothing else really to compete. And that level of um, kind of fascination with this particular family, it's just, she does it so brilliantly. Also, it's so funny at times. She's very, very generous, I think, in the way she writes her children. She allows them a lot of dignity. And she's so brilliant, I think, on all the ways in which children are funny. And it's because they are observing the world in a very clear and straightforward way. She's just masterful. I think those scenes in the first book between Neville, who's a, a boy whose mother died at his birth, and he's such a strange and eccentric little boy, and his, um, his, his dialogue is just, it's just genius. And in Slipstream, never did I understand where that came from. She did have a very close relationship with her much younger brother, uh, maybe she got some inspiration from that because actually she had a, one child herself who she she couldn't feel maternal towards. So it wasn't as if she'd got it from her own children. It was, it was just uncanny how, how brilliantly she creates those characters. And it, I mean, it's not, you know, a modern thing, is it at all, really, that, you know, a, a mother not bonding with a child. But it does feel, I think, very bold and contemporary and fresh. I think she dealt, what she deals with so well is 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 the silences and the things that she lives out. So Louise, who is sort of, I mean, a lot of the characters in the book are her. She uses all sorts of different facets of her character. But Louise is one of the main characters we really care about. And um, her father, as was the case in Elizabeth Jane Howard's life, was overly um, interested in her and was a sort of unable to put the boundaries of sexuality out of the way for her. And in a way, in the, in the autobiography, she's very understanding of it later in life, but, but Louisa's character um, is so hurt by it that she trusted and loved him and then he becomes, you know, aggressive and sexual towards her. And the mother doesn't understand why she's rude to her father and is cold to her. So there's one beautiful scene in it, actually. I remember this particularly where he toasts her marriage and it says, the past lay between them like a knife. And I remember thinking, ah, oh, she doesn't have to explain anything. And there's just, so, so basically she loses her, both her parents um, mm. because of the act of one. 
and the lack of understanding of the other. Not that she ever really explains to her mother, so her mother's kind of lost too. But it's so sad, isn't it, that, you know, craving tenderness, not getting it at all from her mother and with her father, it comes with something loaded and unwanted. Great, because you've written, you write so beautifully about motherhood and daughterhood and families. I was wondering whether growing up, the books you read, whether there were any families that you were particularly appalled by or drawn to in fiction. Oh, yes. Um, Well, I was very taken. I I didn't learn to read myself till quite late. So I was very reliant on my mother reading to me, which she did every night. And um, I particularly loved Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, the big woods and um, Little House on the Prairie. And I, I didn't realise so much later when I was sort of being asked early books I loved that I thought, oh, yes, I was already as a child making up stories about my life because it was such a strange and, and, and in so many ways it was hard to make sense of. So I'd make up stories in order to give it some kind of form. And I guess that's what Laura Ingalls Wilder was doing in her books as well, is that she was telling us her life but making stories out of the events of you know her sister getting so ill and um the sort of poverty and the difficulties but also the joys and the small rituals that they loved so much and our own lives at that particular time we lived in a quite a sort of old-fashioned almost slightly amish way and so I really responded to the idea that I read it to my children they laughed so much they said gosh you've read us a whole book and the only thing that happened was that they tapped some trees and maple syrup came out literally in 200 pages I said I know it's so gripping (laughs) (laughs) but it is astonishing isn't it when you think that she is writing about you know nature red and teeth and something that's really bleak and hard to survive and yet created this universe that really does feel cozy and that especially those the very first books I think give such an impression of warmth and you know the hearth when everything outside is is dangerous um some I was just reading an interview where you were talking about uh writing in Tracy Chevalier's house um and uh, we've interviewed her on this podcast and she also talked about her love of Laura Ingalls Wilder ah. and and those books and I was wondering what it's like to write in the home of another writer does it feel full of thoughts and stories when you sit down it was a very interesting experience I was just thinking today how much I was missing it because um I was really lucky to just happen to bump into her just as I was um, the second or whatever lockdown we were in. Anyway, early, early November, late October. And I was just thinking, oh, I've got the story I'm desperate to write. My house is full of people. And um, if only I can, I was sort of gazing around in a kind of slightly whimsical way, fantasizing. There must be a room somewhere just empty. Anyway, there it was, her whole house empty. And um, yes, I felt at first I actually didn't work in her study. I felt too, um, it felt so personal. It felt kind of wrong to go in and sit in her study. But then after a while, I, the chair was too comfortable to avoid. It was almost like it seeped into me slowly. At first, I was so burning to have some free time to work. I didn't really notice anything. But slowly, as the months went on, I started noticing. I started to notice slowly the books that she had in her study and the quotes that she had pinned up on the walls. And I noticed lovely little postcards and references to her own work. Uh, there was some a little jar, pearl onions, it was called. There were lots of funny little jokes in reference to Girl with a Pearl Earring. Every so often I would chuckle. And it was nice. It was almost like being kind of blanketed by someone else's creativity, actually. I, I'm rather missing it. And I haven't been able to 
get into anything that much in the last few weeks since I came back to my own study, partly because I'm embarking on publicity for this book. So I, everything's a, is, is a bit bitty. And when I was there, I was just writing and I just didn't look up really for hours and hours. I love that idea of this being a cultural exchange. I think there are lots of writers who, especially now when we're just, you know, so... But wherever we've been for the last year, I think, unless we've, you know, been able to sort of hide out in the Bahamas or wherever people go, um, I think we're all sort of fed up with it. So, you know, just finding another writer and swapping for a week or a month and seeing what comes out. I know. Uh, well, I, I'd been teaching a creative writing class for the last few years and we were, we were going to have a break this time last year. We'd been working together for over a year. But then when lockdown happened, I said, I really think this would be a very important time to continue. We need each other. And we continued on. We just now stopped last week to have another break, a year later. Um, and that really kept me going. I felt very inspired by uh, sort of sharing work with, you know, even though they're my students, I always do all the exercises too and feel very connected into the themes that we picked up from week to week. Uh, it made a big difference. That's fascinating. Did the content change at all? Did people find themselves drawn to you know, sort of more intense emotional themes or ideas during the, the turmoil and upheaval? Or did people just end up sort of focusing more? Did the pull of the group bring the work out of everyone? It's so interesting because the group had been going face to face in a room for, for quite some time. And I thought, well, it won't be as good on Zoom. But in some ways, people really raised their game and there was an intimacy about reading to a you know a slightly smaller group, so there were about ten of us. I felt so close to everybody, and I think that actually people's work uh, really did kind of become more precise and more emotional, and in a way more daring. I asked people initially to write a diary every week, and people sent it round, and people were so incredibly honest, and um, everyone started to really get to know each other. And um, people got ill, and people's families were ill and people were fearful and um yeah there, there was a real bond between everyone and that that fed in to their own work and I often it made me think because I often read them something that I'm really enjoying or a poem or I often start an exercise by reading something of a really high quality and I always notice that the better the work I'm reading to them the better their work is it's like people get inspired and they also their minds expand they think oh anything's possible it's why reading is so important for a writer, because you are so um, affected by, by the bravery and broadness of thought of other writers. It makes you, makes you realise what's possible. I love that. I love that. I think writing makes us dare. And it's comforting to know and thrilling how beautiful and thoughtful and wise something can be. And also sometimes I think how mad <laughs> and baffling and experimental and and dark that you know the multitudes contained which books do you think have taught you the most about writing this is the book I always go back to and I've mentioned it before quite a few times um and it's because it's the book that made me think for the first time oh maybe I maybe I could write something and it's a novel by Jean Rhys called Voyage in the Dark and um there's something very, very pure about the way she tells her story. And her story is emotionally driven as opposed to plot driven. Is that, that's how I see it anyway. I used to always, I'd wanted to write for a long time in a kind of fantastical way. I, I never imagined I would have the discipline. 
But when I read that book, it was very much about loneliness, feeling outside of society, and about being quite lost in her past. And Jean Rees herself, it was pretty autobiographical. And she'd come from Dominica as a girl of 16, and she was living very much alone in London, um, very much without any kind of um, support. She just writes about this, she creates this character and it's so spare and funny, but the language is so beautiful, but without ever being showy, it's almost like you're breathing it in. And I remember being so transported by this book and also feeling like I could tell a story that wasn't driven by a car chase or a murder or I could tell a story about all the different things that you keep inside yourself while you're just going about a normal day. And I, I did eventually. Um, I think my second novel was almost like a homage to Voyage in the Dark because she's also a 16 year old want to be actress who came to London for the first time. So, Do you think loneliness never stops being something, you know, worth exploring? And I think it's something that is coming up a lot now, especially because we're sort of, you know, we're more connected than ever in some ways, but more estranged in others. Embarrassingly, I cannot remember if I've read Voyage in the Dark. I remember reading Wide Sargasso Sea. Is that Jean Rees? It is. And, and Jean, Jean Rees wrote four novels in the 30s, um, and they're all quite autobiographical. And they tend, well, someone, I read this recently, that they always follow the same kind of trajectory. A woman rather poverty-stricken, waits in a room for a man to come buy her a drink and possibly give her some money to buy a dress. And Why Sargasso Sea, she wrote many, many years later in the 70s, when people had thought that she had actually died and someone rediscovered her and asked if she was working on anything. And she said, yes, I had an idea for who's that first Mrs. Rochester? And they kind of went, please write it and gave her some money. And so it's a, it's, it's a much later book that made people... Uh, reconnect with her earlier books. I do have a memory of dress shopping. I think a lot about, I think, George Orwell in his essays writes so well about the transformative power of clothes and, you know, to make us feel wonderful and in control or dreadful and about, you know, all the class and sort of ego and money and identity and everything that's bound up with them and how interesting it is that when he does it, he is being a sort of very wise socio-political commenter and when a woman does it and what I remember so vaguely about Jean Rees counting out the sort of so many guineas for a suit and knowing that spending the money she didn't have it was worth more as a suit and sort of in her pocket in terms of the power and the presence it gave her that that writing is so resonant and so significant and that's just you know women writing about clothes and it's not taken as seriously as, as it deserves to be that's so true there's such a beautiful scene in Forge in the Dark where the man who becomes her lover her benefactor gives her some money and she goes and buys a coat she decides that having a coat it is a very socio-economic decision she's made because people will treat her completely differently if she has a good coat. She's always cold as well because obviously she's lived her whole life in a warm country and she describes the damp, cold dreariness of London and the, the lodging she has. She's always got an incredibly disapproving landlady. But with a good coat, people take a bit more notice of her and they don't turf her out the day she doesn't pay the rent because they think, well, she's got a good coat. She must have some resources. I was wondering whether there are any literary crushes you will admit to or 
uh, figures in books that have sort of captured your romantic imagination, romantic heroes or villains. I think reading Jane Eyre when I was a teenager probably had quite a bad effect on me in the kind of, I was always been a bit of a romantic. And I really did believe for a long time that if I thought hard enough about whoever it was I happened to be in love with at that particular moment, and it was pretty um, numerous, because I love that scene when she has to make a decision and she thinks she hears her name being called and she finally goes back to Rochester. I remember sort of leaning out of my window, kind of listening to see if someone was calling to me. And I, I think that whole idea of romance, I don't want to ever give it up, but I do think that it was pretty distracting. I think of all the things I might've been doing when I was just mooning around, listening for my name to be called by someone who probably hardly even knew what my name was. So I'd say that was a crush. And I actually love the dialogue between Rochester and Jane Eyre. I, I read it again quite recently and I just couldn't really believe the intensity of the way he flirts with her, the way he tries to see right into her soul and that she also talks about her own soul and, and you know, says, don't, just because I'm a small plain thing, um, don't think I don't have one, but he sees it. And it's absolutely, it's, it's so modern and so intense the way that they connect with each other. He's not sort of dallying around with her in informed language. And you, you think about that young woman writing that book, the intensity of her feelings that she plows into it. Marvellous. I hadn't thought about that before because when I read it as a teenager, I guess I thought, well, yes, of course, you know, that's exactly what you want, talk of souls. That's yes. exactly what a romantic hero should be doing. And you want someone who's going to see you. And that's how, at a time when, you know, I think like, most teenage girls feeling everything should be that raw and intense and then you know reappraising it as an adult and thinking that that was unusual yes I mean sadly that isn't how people talk to each other even when they're really <laughs> madly in love and a bit more of that I think would, would go you know would go far so I I really approve of it and I think um it's really quite sort of thrilling and it fits in with the whole feeling of the book that what she's always battling with right from the beginning is is being true to what's inside her and all the way through, she's saying, I believe in what's inside me. I am I am uh, bigger than you think I am. I am really, I am special in here, even if I'm absolutely sidelined by everyone she comes in contact with for so long. She has an amazing self-belief. I was wondering about books as gifts and if there's, there are any books in particular that you love to give and the best books that you've ever received. I do love to give books. I, I try really hard only to give books to people who really do love getting books. I know there's a lot of people who think, oh no, damn, a book, you know. It's like people getting a pair of socks, although personally I love nothing more than getting a pair of socks. Um, <laughs> Just use the sock to kind of wrap the book in. <laughs> yes. It's very practical. Put your sock on, but... read your book. I do tend to give books if I'm reading something I'm really enjoying. So recently I gave Nicole Krauss To Be A Man, a wonderful collection of short stories that's just recently come out. I bought that for a lot of people for Christmas. I just felt, I don't know why exactly, maybe I've actually noticed that I've been really enjoying reading short stories during lockdown. I think a lot of people have found it hard to completely immerse themselves in a novel. And the short stories, each one was like a little world and the whole collection seemed to work together. I really loved reading it. So I gave that with quite a lot of confidence. Were they pleased? Have you heard yes, from people who've enjoyed it? I have. So I don't know this book at all. Please uh, ah, tell me. Some of the shorts, I mean, I, I've read um, History of Love by Nicole Krauss. 
And even though I really loved it, I didn't read anything else by her until this book. Um, I've been published by Bloomsbury for quite a few years and I have the great luck and treat of being sent their proofs often. Well, my editor will probably just send me the things that she thinks I'll like, but this was one of the proofs that arrived. And um, so I read it quite early on. And each story, to be a man, it isn't as if it adheres in every single story of what it's like to be a man, but somehow maleness and the, and the, the narrator of each story is, an, is a first person woman. We don't ever really know necessarily if they're the same woman who she is, her life merges. But men come into the story and always in a very interesting and slightly the unknownness of men, I think, is one of the themes and the mystery of them. And yeah, do you know, it's a, a really hard book to sum up. She's what you do feel when you're reading her. her. I, f I remember thinking this before when I read Nicole Krauss. She writes so beautifully in this sudden sharp intelligence at play. She's very inspiring. That sounds really intriguing. And it's so funny. I, I do read short stories rarely. And then whenever I do, I think, why don't I do this all the time? This is wonderful. I'm in the middle of, I think it's a Sylvia Townsend Warner, a collection of short stories. Um, it's a Persephone edition. And it's called something like The English During Wartime. Right. Often it's a comparison we've made a lot. And of course, I think, you know, what's happening is... Nothing like the Second World War, but it is a little bit. And the, it's what she notices about people being sort of comically dreadful to each other. And that you'd hope that people would be their very best selves during a time of crisis. And often they're not at all. I've never read anything by Sylvia Townsend Warner, but I'll add that to my list. I have been reading a lot of short stories. I started writing short stories in the autumn Partly after I finished this book, I I just wasn't ready to go into another novel. I felt so um, happy to be sort of, I'd come out of this intense world of writing that novel and I needed to um, do something less immersive or maybe just immersive for a shorter length of time. So ever since then, I've been writing short stories and, and somehow being really drawn to reading them. I've been reading short stories by Elizabeth Bowen, wonderful, really full of light and strange goings on and lots of joy and eccentricity. Uh, Tessa Hadley, wonderful short stories. Um, I just read a gorgeous oh, so collection by David Saleh. Short stories, it's called Turbulence and each short story, so you have one story, a woman gets on a plane having left her life in London and on the plane she connects just minutely with somebody and the next story is his story. He connects minutely with someone and the next story is her story. On it goes. And we get a kind of beautiful circle of just people's lives and the way they kind of just brush up against each other. So that was that was really enjoyable. I, I do like a linked short story if it's possible. And I got really inspired by uh, Lucia Berlin, Manual for a Cleaning Woman. It's, it's a marvellous collection of very autobiographical stories. And I think that's what made me start wanting to write some of my own, actually. I was quite late to the Gia Berlin, I think. Was it last? I think it was pre-pandemic. You know when you just read a book and you feel winded by it and you're torn because you don't know whether you just want to read and read and read compulsively or just take a minute and get your breath back. And I can't believe how funny she is. And the story I think about 
at least once a week, often more. It's the woman, I can't quite remember how it happens, but she's got the car and she keeps leaving it in places and the kindly drunks are sort of minding it for her. And the the tenderness in those communities and all the stories about, you know, sort of raking the sand. And I think she is maybe a writer for anyone who's loved Laura Ingalls Wilder and that, you know, creating coziness within chaos and finding these shards and scraps of joy and the light that shines through and pinpricks through the darkest I know things that she the, the humanity in those stories and the honesty with which she writes and she um you know writes about desperately you know not being able to get to the morning without a drink and how she mm. she claws her way to the all-night off-license and and gets something to drink and how the other the other people also in the same desperate state as her are kind to her and there's a little community mm. and she she sheds light onto places you wouldn't expect to find it and it's really it's a really surprising collection isn't it it's just gorgeous um i loved what she what she sort of did with her own material and then there are marvelous stories that sort of you know you get these little precise concise stories and then these big expansive stories that tell her, I've always loved a story within a story. And sometimes you get that in these books where there's a beautiful one about a woman who, she asks her, her lover about a woman he'd loved. And he starts to tell her about a woman that was the most beautiful woman that was a wife of a friend of his. Anyway, and these stories kind of overlap until suddenly it seems that she's met this woman or also fallen in love with this woman can't remember exactly but it's like a waterfall of strange coincidences all of which you believe entirely imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature sleep number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together jd power ranks sleep number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store and now save 50 percent on the sleep number limited edition smart bed for a limited time for jd power 2023 award information visit jdpower.com awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll be back to Esther soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen Here's Looking at You by Mary McFarlane. Anna is stylish, successful, and she has a secret. 
James has been haunting her dreams and her nightmares for over 15 years and has no idea about the role he played in her past when he starts to fall for her. Nothing makes my heart happier than a really brilliant rom-com. And this is one of the funniest and the most grown up that I've ever read. The satire, the observation and the beautifully realised supporting cast elevate this book. The story is sharp but sweet and the storytelling is utterly masterful. I adore this book, a comfort read with a real kick. Here's Looking at You by Mary McFarlane. It's published by Avon and out now. Now, back to Esther. When you were talking about, was it the David Saleh short stories about the plane? I was thinking about reading for empathy and that linking and that overlapping. I, I think that a certain kind of short story, glimpsing something through a very sort of narrow gap, and finding fullness behind it that if we all did that more in life and I think short stories encourage that I think it promotes a sort of generosity of spirit that's very necessary now yes I think reading does widen up your heart so that how can you not be empathetic when you know all the details it's like people often become absolutely outraged by certain behavior because they they have missing information but the more you read and the more you really think broadly it's hard to uh, do that because you're you're seeing all the other reasons and the sides for it, and uh, I, I think a, a very generous-hearted writer will will show you all of that and therefore not make a judgment and leave it up to you to how you respond. And I wonder if that comes back a little bit to what you're saying about Jean Rees, giving a lot of time and attention to very very small details, and those writers who make you believe that the emotions can be the story and I think what I love so much is those books work because it's so unusual isn't it I think there is so much pressure to have you know you must have action and things happening but in real life lots of people feel lost and uncertain and bored very very bored and I'm very I'm always happy when I find a writer who can describe boredom beautifully yes it's true I mean I suppose they have both of those writers were writing their books set in a time where life was much more much more slow paced and I, I think it's why I was thinking about this actually with one of my characters in, in I Couldn't Love You More, Kate, because she's quite an isolated character and I was thinking maybe I should give her more friends. Um, but the thing about the, the richer and fuller your life is, is there's less time to reflect and there's less time to sort of have a breakthrough. And I know when we were kids, we were so bored a lot of the time. We lived in the country, we didn't have a TV, there's nothing to do. But as a result, you know, of course we, we made things we invented things and we dressed up and put on plays and, uh, you know, whittled things with sticks. I mean, I'm not saying I would wish that on my children because it was also quite boring. And sometimes I would do stupid, reckless things like hitchhike to, you know, another town. Uh, but as far as a book is concerned, it's good to live, leave a lot of space around your character so that they can, they can fall into crisis and they can really experience the real essence of what it's like to be cut off or lonely or hungry or bored or desperate, whatever it is, so that they can fall back on their resources um, rather than just say, oh, oh, should I I just meet up for a coffee? As one (laughs) does in real life, thank God. Um, You want everything to be pushed a little bit more to the extreme. Mm. Well, there's, you know, famously the rule about children's literature is to to make the story, to make any kind of a story, you've got to get rid of their parents. (laughs) Otherwise, there's no way they could possibly have any adventures because they'll be, um, they'll be supervised. I just read and really, really, really enjoyed a book by Jane Irons. It's called Domestic Bliss and Other Disasters. It came to me just in time. 
Um, and it's got a really brilliant first sentence about how she has two best friends and she hates them both. <laughs> it sounds so brilliant. I don't know why or where I saw it, but I saw that title the other day somewhere and thought, what a brilliant title. I must read that book. So thanks for that. I'll definitely look out for it. I judge books by their covers all the time. Yes. You just instinctively have an idea about a book that's going to speak to you. And sometimes you just think, no, it might be brilliant. It may have won prizes, but it's just not calling out to me. In fact, when I read uh, Voyage in the Dark, I was in a, in a market and I wandered past one of those bookstalls that has all the books laid out face up on a big table and a funny 70s a copy, a little shabby paperback of Voyage in the Dark. I don't think I'd ever even heard of Jean Rees. There it was, and it, it was like it just zoomed towards me. And I bought it, and I read it almost instantly, and it, it had a profound effect on me. I, I didn't start writing for a few years after that, but I, I was definitely the beginning of um, a seed that kind of grew. I thought, yes, yes, and there it was. I always wonder why it just sprang out at me like that. So I do think covers, titles, just some, sometimes books are kind of actually waving at you. And I love that idea of the seed and it's something that's sort of growing and being nurtured over the years. Yeah. Are you much of a rereader? Are there any other books that you return to in times when you need comfort or boosting? I'm not much of a rereader. Um, in fact, probably I would never reread anything because I quite like the strange, fantastical way you tell stories about books to yourself that you've read. And sometimes you reread them and realise, oh, that wasn't even really in there. Um, but it somehow was in there for me. And um, I have read I have read Voyage in the Dark a few times. Um, Anna Karenina, another great, great favourite book of mine, I did reread. I was absolutely staggered what I could have possibly made of it the first time I read it because it's so deeply about people's communication and love and connection with each other and philosophy and nature. But I loved it just as much the first time. When did you first read it? First read it sort of late teens, I think. I don't know why I think I shouldn't have had all those feelings. I did. I felt everything just as strongly. But I think later, maybe in my early... I don't know when I read it again, late 30s probably. And I guess I just understood it on a completely different level. But I I, I don't tend to reread. Oh. I'm always looking for something new and always feeling that so many things I haven't got round to that feels squanderous to read something twice. What's on your pile at the moment? Which books are you looking forward to? I sort of pile some up by my bed. The ones I think, yes, I'd like to read. Then I pile some in my study. Sometimes I pile them just indiscriminately and then I have a sort out and I find some book from five years ago saying uh, we really hope you'll enjoy this book if you could you know say something about it by next week and I think oh damn um <laughs> what am I looking forward to I've just started reading I know this came out a while ago but um Reservoir 13 John McGregor um I've been wanting to read that for a really long time I wanted to read what else have I want to read people have been talking about a book called Less which everyone, they've been absolutely raving about it. Is that Andrew Sean Greer? Yes, it is. Andrew Sean Greer. And apparently it's incredibly funny. And it's about a novelist, which is always a delight. When someone can pull that off, it's very funny. I really loved Less. And I love funny books. But occasionally when someone says, you must read this, it's so funny. Mm. I have that mix of excitement and dread. Like, But is it though? Right. But I was genuinely really, really touched by that book because the protagonist is so 
has a sort of gentleness of spirit. And what I love as well, any book that's got that sort of a slightly shabby person cast in a world where, you know, sort of carved out a space of belonging that doesn't quite fit. It's actually quite rare to find a book that's really funny. I used to read a lot of Evelyn War because it used to make me laugh so much. And um, I think I have read some of those several times. Handful of Dust, so so funny and then so dark and heartbreaking i mean what a what a thing to pull off and vile bodies the way the women talk uh i mean in all the all the war books the way the sort of society revolves around sort of a little inner circle of people and the way they sort of talk and have these fads and have foot massages and people tell mm. their fortunes it's just so the way women have always you know behave right now and it's such a gift as well because he was so as i understand it sort of enmeshed in that world but to be able to step outside of your own universe and write about it and make it universal and be able to tell you know strangers and people who are not sort of racing around in motor cars in the 1920s yes why this is just they would still identify with it it's like you know pursuit of love nancy mitford Mm. everybody loves that book even though it's a world that most people have no way of inhabiting but it's because she does a very clever thing in that book that she does the great thing of an outsider coming in and and looking at a family and kind of being slightly in love. I love books where someone falls slightly in love with a family and you hear all about them and their different ways through a slightly, almost like the straight man character. Mm. And she really does that so well. I, I was thinking about books that made me laugh and Pursuit of Love is certainly one of them. And, and marvellous dialogue. Uncle Davy being so, that character, I think, I mean, probably, I'm sure that's very sort of, you know, modish and of the time, but he feels so sort of contemporaneous for now. It's true. And I always think of that detail about him having, is it red days and white days? But like if, if chocolate appears, that's that's always red or white, yes. depending on what he needs it to be. I guess I love it when someone's taken such specific jokes that they obviously laughed at themselves and managed to kind of give it to us in such a way that we can also see how funny it is. It's just full of that kind of very precise, intricate humour. Yeah, it's just it's just absolutely gorgeous. That is a book I would like to read again, and I'm sure I have read it more than once, because it's it's so finely wrought that there's all these little tiny pockets of humour. I mean, uh, thinking of funny books, I guess because I'm being asked at the moment to write sort of what's the book that made you laugh, cry, etc. I'm really thinking, what are these books? Um, uh, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Do you remember that a few years ago? <gasps> oh, listed for I the, love for the women's example. I love her. Prize. And oddly enough, I, I didn't read anything else she wrote. Actually, I have a bit of a fear. If I really love a book by someone, I think of it just on its own. I, I don't necessarily, I feel fearful of um, reading anything else by them. I think it's when I was a child, I read, I read Little Women, and I loved it so much, obviously, as everyone does. And then I read Good Wives and I just wanted to hurl it across the room. I just, I was so disappointed. And it's always made me feel very tentative about um, going in for any other book by the same author, although obviously I have on some occasions. But um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? So funny. And I remember actually bumping into someone in the street not long after finishing it and talking about it. And we both became almost hysterical with with laughter as we remembered all the funniest bits of it yeah that's that's definitely a book that could cheer anyone up and it really does have the most amazing manic energy yes. in it's sort of its own universe that carries itself along I really loved this is me failing to think of titles again um I 
think, has she read written three novels or are there more? But the one before, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It's not called so much for that. This one is mine. Okay. Which Would you recommend that? I really enjoyed it. It's definitely a bit darker okay. and more subtle, but there's a detail where there's a wedding and I think the heroine is marrying a a sort of music exec like a top Los Angeles A&R man and I think they get someone like like Metallica to play at the reception who refused to play the medley of Sondheim songs that the bride requests because they're just too sad and too heartbreaking oh my god it's making me really want to read that because I was you know I was thinking about sort of favourite song lyrics and I always if I'm asked my favourite song lyric I mean there are so many great song lyrics but Sondheim um the coffee cup I think about you the sun comes mm. up I think about you and that just has everything doesn't it it's like the obsession the craziness and the deep deep feeling all in one go so okay Maria Semple I was worried that it that would just be a fluke that no one could pull off such a good book again and I didn't want to be disappointed um, I was thinking when you were talking about the pursuit of love and the outsider observing the family of one of my favorite books um Barbara Trapido and um, Brother of the More Famous Jack. Me too. And I saw that I was she is a great fan of yours. Oh, well, I think I started thinking about her because she really encouraged Maria Semple, I think. Well, as you were talking about Where'd You Go, Bernadette, I suddenly remembered Maria Semple saying something that Barbara Trapido had supported her in some way. And I was thinking, Brother of the More Famous Jack, what a marvellous novel. And uh, I would really like to read that again. I read that so long ago. And I, I love her beautiful, lyrical and funny, eccentric books. There's some great scenes in that. Yes, and she just wrote me a beautiful quote. I haven't seen Barbara Trevita for a long time, but um, yeah, that was really nice. It was one of the first, there's a moment where your proof copies get sent out and there's this kind of, it's like you take a breath and you think, either they're going to do what I do is rip it out of the packet and just for some reason read it immediately or they might put it on a shelf and five years later find find it. And anyway, Barbara Trepido was one of the people who started reading must have been within five minutes of it arriving. So it was a lovely moment. My first novel was published um, a couple of months ago in February. Oh. And yes, that when the proofs go and that sort of wanting to kind of ring everyone up and you've had it for four hours now what do you think exactly you just can't really believe even though it took you years to write you think someone should be able to just read it that night you can't quite believe that they would do anything else um but then it, quite quickly that fades away and you forget that they've gone out and you carry on it's sort of an initial burst of anxiety um because it's been your own secret for so many years I mean I don't know if you wrote your book over so many years or if it came out quickly but you know, it's your own little secret world that you've created and, and writing is really communication and you're, it's out there and you want, you want to have the conversation. You want someone to throw the ball back to you. It's perverse, I think, because it's the most intimate thing I can think of doing and yet I wouldn't do it if I didn't want to be read. <laughs> I don't understand. I know. I think there's a really interesting question there. I often uh, write things. I am at, I kind of only really allow myself to write them because I think, well, no one, maybe no one will ever read this. And the truth is sometimes that, that chapter goes by the wayside and no one ever, ever will read it. But you have to kind of fool yourself into a really secret, intimate place and then fool yourself out of it again. Mm. I don't think you can do both things. I'm not, But I do sometimes read, well, you read about writers from the past who 
um, Robert Louis Stevenson, apparently, he wrote Jekyll and Hyde, you know, in three days or something insane like that, maybe three weeks. And then he read it to his wife. And, you know, you hear about writers who will read their work. And I, if I've written something that excites me, I often just want to immediately find someone and read it to them. And then the next day I read it and think, oh, God, thank God they weren't available because I'm just about to <laughs> totally rewrite that page or that chapter. Gosh, it's like being drunk on, you know, your sort of creative spirit, isn't it? And then the hangover comes. So quickly. I know, it's so funny. We've talked about books that have made you laugh. Um, are there any books that have made you cry? I have often cried over books, whether or not they've made me cry or whether they've allowed me to cry. And actually, the, it's really not helpful even to say this because the book that I cried most after, it was a book, it was only a year or so after my father died and I read this book. And it's so why I'm saying it's unhelpful is I have never remembered ever what it was called or who it was by. And I just cried and cried. It's like it opened something for me. And um, books are so powerful like that. And I, I have often cried at a book, but not necessarily because it's the saddest book, just because I needed to. And it was a sort of safe space in the pages. Mm. I was thinking about that and I was struggling to really think of a book recently. Well, I've been rather happy. I haven't cried at a book, certainly, even if books have been sad. This is a big spoiler um, for anyone who's read the Tales of the City books, but the, I think the final one in the series where a beloved character passes at a fairly grand old age when this is someone that you've known for six or seven or eight. I don't know. And that that feels like a sort of a someone I had a relationship with, even though it was entirely one-sided <laughs> and imaginary. Yes. Oh, my God. It's just the most marvellous feeling. It's so sumptuous. Sometimes I finish a book and I love it so much. I, I had this with Anne Patrick, who I particularly love, State of Wonder. I just sort of held it in my arms like a small child. I just couldn't bear to let it go. I, I felt so connected with the world that she'd created that um, I didn't want to stop. And, you know, when you know you love a book, when you read every single thing in the acknowledgements, you read the blurb on the back again, you look at the cover, you look at the photo, you just can't quite bear to part with it. Have you heard the Elizabeth Gilbert story? It's one of my favourite things. Tell me, I might have. The Elizabeth Gilbert, she talks about this in Big Magic. She had an idea for a story and it was in South America and it's about, I think, a possibly a, uh, a big drug yes, company. Lots yes. of money, someone gets sent away, someone goes missing. She couldn't, she tried it, I think, over maybe a couple of years, just couldn't make the story work. And then met Anne Patchett, who went off to write State of Wonder without either of them having said anything about this. But State of Wonder is one of those books where every single character could go off and carry their own novel. You do, you come away full of questions, but not unsatisfied, which is an extraordinary accomplishment. Oh gosh, but The Dutch House, because that's what I had that book. That was on my proof pile for a good couple of years. And I saw the very sort of painterly, classy, beautiful cover. And I thought, well, this looks a bit dry and very like a bit grand. And it's not something that I'm going to enjoy. And people keep saying, oh, but Anne Patchett. And I'm like, oh, give it a go, I suppose. And then, you know, in a day, just sort of breathlessly binged it and thought, this is magnificent. Uh, so in that case, the book didn't give you just quite the right impression. I actually had the, exactly the opposite because I I love State of Wonder. I loved Commonwealth. I just thought that was marvellous. Such a clever book about, about an extended family, but also about whose who's right it is to tell stories, something I struggle with quite a lot. Am I allowed to tell this story? Who's going to, whose story really is it? 
Um, but then, yeah, the Dutch house, I, I was grabbing hold of that proof when it arrived, but it didn't, it didn't get inside me. I really admired it, but I didn't, I didn't uh, mourn it when it was finished, like, like her other books. So personal, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? And it goes back to what you were saying as well about that. When you have loved the work of a writer, you know, that there are no guarantees. And it's harder in a way when you go in with a, a heart full of hope and some expectation and when something is entirely new. I know. What's odd is sometimes you think this isn't a good book and sometimes you know it's just you because I still thought it was marvellous and I gave it to lots of people, actually. It's just it wasn't for me for some reason. It wasn't for me, whereas the other books felt as if they were <laughs> they were somehow I was entirely kind of personally connected to them. So obviously I was coming from a high place of judgment there. So I have a few books which everyone's loved and I haven't been able to understand how they got into them. I just couldn't, it was like a wall that I just couldn't find the door to. So yes, you just have to try another time. Because you feel really shut out then. You think everyone's talking and talking and loving this book and you just think that nah, just couldn't. Because when you can't, when you can't get inside a book, it takes so long to read. If I love a book, I'll just zip through it. And if it's if I can't get there, you know, I, I feel like months pass and I'm still trawling through the, you know, I haven't even got to page 100. So it's hard to persevere. Sometimes, I don't know if you find this where you have conversations with someone and somebody's maybe not got inside it in that way. Or so oh, I don't really understand why they did this. Or they'll notice plot holes that I've been oblivious to. And thought, oh, I just assumed they thought this through or done this other thing. And if I'm in the book... I'm very sort of forgiving of the book, whereas if anything starts to take me out of it, everything yes, takes me out of it. Yes, it's so true. And you find yourself defending it madly, saying, mm. well, I, I know, well, I, yeah, of course. I mean, who knows how? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, I suppose, if you look at it like that. But just imagine and you just put up a kind of crazy defence of a book because you, you feel so connected to it as if it's your own child. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Are there any books that you haven't mentioned that you feel you've left out that you wanted to talk about? Oh, yeah. The only thing I would say is one thing that has surprised me and delighted me this year is I've read a lot more poetry. And maybe it's because what I was saying about reading short stories is sort of we started doing a partly to got some teenagers in the house to find ways of differentiating the days of the week we've had to Monday night poetry night and so every every Monday we all have to bring a poem to the table and I've read all sorts of wonderful poems and one of the things I really enjoyed which is a book by um, Jay Bernard called Surge and it's a sort of book of poems that almost reads like a really experimental novel and it's based on the um, fires in um, New Cross many years ago where 13 young black people lost their lives. Some people feel murdered. And it was one of those feelings, you know, a, a tragedy happens and no one really cared enough about it. And Jay Bernard recreates this in so many inventive and incredible ways. And I really, I got a lot out of this and actually just regularly because of Monday nights, having to just dip around in my poetry collection and pull all sorts of things out has been a lovely and sort of eye-opening thing to do. And often, even though it only takes 10, 15 minutes to read a poem, often I have never made time for it. Have your family surprised you with any poems um, that you have been delighted to find or rediscover? Yes, they really have. My 16-year-old has surprised me inordinately with, you know, poems by Yeats. And he's taken all sorts of wonderful poems from sort of anthologies that have been given by school that he hadn't so looked at and came up with wonderful 
Wonderful things. And my daughter's boyfriend, who'd hardly ever read a poem, wrote a poem and is now where now we refer to his collected works. So, yeah, sometimes when he's not here, he emails in a poem. So, no, oh, it's wow. really, it's been very inspiring. Well, I must read Serge because I, I don't know those poems and I really, really liked it. And I always, again, poetry is it's very accessible, I think. It's, it isn't sitting down with War and Peace or, or Anna Karenina. It's, uh, it's something that I should do and don't do, but I will. And I think, I will do it I think you're right. I think that the more you do it, the more accessible it feels. And if you're going to read Serge, read it, but also have a look on YouTube at Jay Bernard performing the poems because that's a real treat. Huge thanks to Esther. I Couldn't Love You More is out now and published by Bloomsbury. And I honestly couldn't love it more. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. It is always a real treat to be in your ears. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We really do love it when you share the podcast with your friends. And huge, huge thanks to everyone who has left a five-star review. It's the best way to help other people to discover the podcast and some new books. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Esther at acast.com booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. For now, I leave you with this from Elizabeth Gilbert. My goal was to publish something, anything, anywhere, before I died. I collected only massive piles of rejection notes for years. I sort of figured I'd be rejected, but I also thought, hey, someone has to write all these stories. Why not me? See you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.